You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 1. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. I've got Dylan, my co-host on here, and we're recording this early December. So I wanted to ask you, Dylan, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, my Thanksgiving was something like I've never experienced before. It was three days long, not one day long. It was a day of cleaning, and then it was a day of hosting, and then it was another day of cleaning. You hosted? Yeah, first year. First year I've hosted. And you know what? Had a lot of fun doing it. I think I'll do it again. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I did have a lot of fun. Not too much chaos? No, no, not too much chaos and not not too many people too, I think is the key. So the traditional Thanksgiving I'm used to growing up was, you know, dozens and dozens of people, you know, 40 people. That I can see being a little bit of chaos, but we had about 15 people over. It wasn't so bad. How about how about you, Brandon? Yeah, mine mine was interesting this year. So we went to my parents' house on Tuesday. Then they were flying out to Europe for a trip on friday so we actually left friday and came back to uh to our house and we had saturday and sunday to ourselves and that was the first time that we've ever done that normally it's like you you get sunday afternoon to yourself uh and you're scrambling to prepare for the next week but it was like the most relaxing thanksgiving i've ever had so i told my wife it's like we we are doing it this way in the future <laughs> the the whole weekend saturday yeah. sunday you get to you get to go exercise and go to your yeah. gym and all you burn off all the thursday calories yeah 100% <laughs> mine, mine was great mine was great appreciate you asking all right so today we've got matt Bronner on the show and very cool episode what were some of your biggest takeaways from it so Matt is a really cool guy because he he breaks things down really well and explains it to anybody listening as though they've never heard it before, but in such a way they get a lot out of it. So I think I like his style. I also think he brings a lot of unique insights to the syndication game because we see a lot of people in the syndication game who maybe haven't been in it for very long, but he's been doing things in real estate way before he was doing things in syndication. So he started in his real estate you know, around the 2008 era and has been kind of bootstrapping it up along until about 2020. So I think the most interesting thing for me is hearing how he applies all of that true operator skill set and then translates it into talking with his investors because now he is a syndicator. Now he does do full-blown syndication. So I, th- I think that's pretty cool. What about you, Brandon? Yeah, well, I agree with everything that you said. My my favorite takeaway was that he was recording from an aircraft hangar (laughs) (laughs) like in the background was just huge open room is awesome so if you're watching on youtube you'll get to see the hangar and if you're listening uh sorry that you won't be able to see it but it was a really it was a really fun experience with them yeah for sure before we get into the episode though we always want to take a moment to talk about some insights that we're seeing with our cpa insights segment just things that our clients are seeing or things that we're seeing in the market news as it relates to tax, as riveting as that is. And recently, we've seen a lot of buzz around this case, this Moore versus United States case, which, you know, it's just another one of those cases on the tax docket. But the headlines have been going crazy. It says billionaires don't want you to know about this Supreme Court case. And so, I mean, with such a small case, it revolves around 15 grand worth of tax. Why is it such a big case? Well, At the time we're recording this, the case hasn't been ruled on, but 
essentially the argument of the taxpayer is that the tax is being assessed against income that doesn't meet the definition of income per the 16th Amendment, which is like the entire base of our income tax that we know today. It all revolves around this foreign entity that the taxpayer owns, right? And the entity has some retained earnings, which we won't get into the minutia of the tax code, but there's certain provisions, in, especially as it relates to foreign corporations and the Repatriation Act, that require taxes to be imposed on certain undistributed incomes of foreign corporations. So what does that mean? Why is that even such a big deal? Well, the idea here is that if the IRS rules in favor of this tax, it could open the door for all sorts of other assets and property to be taxed by the IRS. And that really, with a lot of people in the market, or a lot of people in the news are comparing that to a wealth tax, which is obviously a hot button topic right now. So it kind of is one of those cases where it's over a very small item of tax, but they're saying it could have trillions of dollars of impact if this opens up precedent for the IRS and Congress to be able to work together in tandem to bring out things like a wealth tax of that sort. Yeah, yeah. So so I think that the entire idea is that the Supreme Court has the potential to either impose a wealth tax in a roundabout way or prevent it from ever occurring or somehow rule somewhere in the middle. So we're, we're actually recording this. We will probably have the ruling by the time that this podcast releases. But at the time of recording this, the case had just been heard a couple of days ago. So we don't actually have a ruling yet. But, you know, I, I do want to just kind of spend a second and talk about how GPs should think about undistributed earnings, right? Because when you're entities, it's, it's not something that we really think about that often because you're buying real estate, especially in year one, that is creating huge tax loss from depreciation. But the reality is, is that if your entity is earning money, then it's effectively income to you, even if not distributed. It's, it's called constructive receipt, right? right? So that could be your asset management fees that the company earns, but it's not being distributed to you. It could be your acquisition fee if you earn it, but don't distribute it to yourself. And there's ways to roll your acquisition fee back into the deal via waterfalls that avoid that entire, that entire prospect, which we'll get into it at a later episode. But I think it's just important to recognize that when your company earns money, it's attributed to you, you owe tax on it. And, and if you don't pay estimated taxes quarterly, you are effectively having to pay the underpayment penalties, the right. interest associated with not paying that tax, even if you didn't distribute mm -hmm. it, right? So even if it was sitting in your company, if you don't distribute it and pay tax on it, you have to act as if you should have. And that's where all those underpayment penalties and the interest starts kicking in on a quarterly basis. Well, Brandon, Mike, I'm curious then, what about the appreciation that hasn't been realized? Let's say you're a GP and you have a carried interest that you'll earn if this building appreciates and you sell it for a gain. But at this point, the building hasn't been sold. It's still owned. It's unrealized. And now the building is worth a lot. So we know your GP interest is worth a lot because of the carried interest, but nothing has been realized. Does this case have implications around that even? Because I think that might be what some of the, some of the interpreters of this case are concerned about. That's what I was about to say is, is I think that that's the concern, right? It's the, mm -hmm. it's the carried interest piece. It's the unrealized gain. We know that there's value, but we, we haven't actually received it. The income hasn't been generated necessarily. So I think that that's, that's the concern. But, you know, we'll have some clarity here, likely uh, a few days after we record this episode. And we'll be putting stuff out on it whenever we get that clarity. Yep. Looking forward to it. Let's get into this episode with Matt. 
Yep, let's go ahead and bring Matt on. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Brandon. Glad to be here. Dylan, good to see you as well. Matt, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. So Matt, tell us a little bit about your real estate journey and, and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So I am based here in the Twin Cities. And I tell people that I would love to tell you that I was so smart that I had these really in-depth analysis and I had thought a lot about the tax strategies around real estate. And that's why I chose to invest in real estate, but that's not true. So it was 2011. And there was a group of guys I had moved to the Twin Cities to work at Target at their corporate office. We were throwing 50 bucks a month at the stock market and we would sit there and drink beer while we did it. We tended to focus more on drinking beer than what we did on the stock market. One guy got up and said, hey, if you're really interested in making some significant investments, come to Denny's in two weeks. And so went to Denny's, looked around the Twin Cities. And again, I'd love to tell you I had all this in-depth analysis we didn't have it. We primarily started investing in townhomes. Our thought process was one, these things have depreciated or drawn down in value by 50% from their peak. Okay. Were they overvalued? Yeah. But by 50%, no, there's got to be equity left there. And if we can cash flow this thing, well, we're all young. We can wait this out to be able to build up some equity and build some wealth over time. And our model was that we had to do everything. Like the first townhome we bought, we put 30 gallons of paint on there. I can go back and show you emails where we were voting on whether or not to accept residents uh, to live at our properties. There were six of us, and we just thought you had to do everything all at once. Like the first time somebody brought us a syndication, because we did this for about three or four years, we just bought more townhomes. We couldn't actually get any investments or get any debt initially with our company, Minnesota Capital Management. And so we would all have to buy properties and then quick claim the deeds back over to the company. And so we were signing personal notes and then basically taking handshakes. Yeah, the the company's going to cover that, but it does say Matt's name on this loan doc. So very grateful that we were able to continue to pay those. And then in like 2015, 2016, we were brought our first investment opportunity. We did a lot around C-class properties in the Twin Cities. They just on the right side of supply and demand here, right? You can't go back to 1960 and build new apartment units there. But it totally blew our mind. We're like, is this legal? Who goes on title? Like, what what is happening here? And we were really fortunate that we worked with an incredibly strong operator who was able to uh, execute on a couple of value-add strategies. We did a lot of work in the Twin Cities with Bridgewater Bank. And then we're able to go and get agency debt and get all of our money back. And it was, oh my goodness, like what just happened here? Like we still have our money. We got all of our money back on a refinance. We didn't get taxed on that. I don't have to pay a capital gain. Like, how can I do this again? Fast forward to 2019, we started investing out of state. You're kind of a bad guy if you want to enforce a lease in Minnesota right now. We actually are trying to pivot back to Minnesota. We can talk more about that. We're active in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Ohio. And then it's a small world of people who buy and trade apartment buildings. And so met up with two other guys, Drew Whitson and Todd Dexheimer, and we formed a brand. So it's Minnesota Capital Management, Drew Whitson and Todd Dexheimer uh, that compose Enduris Capital. So there in a nutshell is what brings us here today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're you're downplaying just how much of an organization Minnesota Capital Management has really become because correct me if I'm wrong, it's still the same guys, but tell us a little bit more about how that's expanded and, and what that looks like on a go forward basis, just on the Minnesota Capital Management piece, knowing that that's just one arm of Enduris, which is, I'm sure we'll talk about that too. It's even, even a broader spectrum. 
So MCM is a, a broader holding company where we have three business lines, real estate. We do some pretty unique things with property management out in Las Vegas there, specifically with short-term rentals at the MGM signature. It's kind of property management light because you have so much infrastructure there at the signature. And then we actually own and operate an uh, indoor golf business called X-Golf. Uh, so Minnesota, a few people know, like we actually have the highest number of golfers per capita compared to any other state in the union. But winter keeps coming back. We have the fewest number of golfable days. So we have outsized demand and restricted supply. I like it because it also operates pretty lean on the whole. You're about one and a half full-time equivalent employees. And so that's how we've grown MCM over the years. If there's anything that's gone into it, I tell people, we've just tried to take a humble curiosity in what those around us are doing. You know, we didn't invent any of these businesses. We didn't venture into them for the first time among our peer groups. There was always somebody else who went ahead and we were simply willing to say, it looks like they're having an incredible amount of success. How are they doing that? And then being willing to listen and implement it. That's awesome. I personally am a big, big fan of X Golf too. I've tried it out once now. And uh, it's pretty crazy, the stuff that you're doing. Now, it's interesting, though, because you hear a lot of real estate operators who start to diversify, and maybe they don't have the kind of success getting into a different business, or it's, it's just a different game altogether. You also hear that when people decide to do short-term rental for the first time after having operated long-term rentals for their entire real estate career. So maybe speak to the challenges that that has presented and how you've gotten through you know, kind of integrating the business that you have into the new business lines that you've been pursuing? I would say it really comes down to the people there. And so specifically with X-Golf, and there has been some carryover between X-Golf and our real estate business. We recently uh, were blessed to buy a strip center in Apple Valley, and we put in X-Golf as a tenant. And we could have a, another conversation there, the difference between commercial real estate with multifamily. Multifamily, you lower the rent enough, they'll always be residents. They may not pay the rent that you want, but they'll be there. You get into commercial real estate and it's, all right, do you have the right traffic patterns? Do you have the right co-tenancy mix? So having a, a tenant in your back pocket there is incredibly valuable. And so it's been fun to see that come to fruition. And I, I certainly hope that that can continue into the future. X-Golf, we're really blessed because of my business partner that runs it for us. Uh, franchise operations, which X-Golf operates as a franchise, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing passive about anything that I do, but there's certainly nothing passive about X-Golf where you are managing a staff. You are trying to standardize it. We've got six locations. So you're trying to standardize inventory management so that you can especially be conscientious of your costs. You're more exposed to inflationary pressures there and you've got to have really good data and systems in place so that you can respond to it. It's nice because a little bit different than real estate. Uh, I think everyone will tell you they love cash flow out of real estate. And on the whole, you will certainly expect that. But as we're seeing right now, real estate can have some really lean years and it requires an operator that can tolerate that and wait for a payoff at the end. X-Golf is just more uh, cash flow intensive, which is really, really nice there as we supplement some of our, our larger holdings. And then similar in property management out in Las Vegas, we actually owned condos on the Strip for a while. Uh, simply talking to other people who'd seen them do really, really well. Uh, and we could have, again, another conversation about short-term rentals. I'm a big fan, but I think you have to be really coordinated with your approach. There are a lot of guys right now and gals who are losing their shirts because they took cheap money 
when uh, rates were low in 2021, 22. And so if you look at the number of listings on Airbnb, it's ballooned. And so you have all this supply and that's really, really pulling down your rates unless you have kind of like the marquee product that people can offer there. So we really went from, hey, let's own and operate these things out in Las Vegas to, okay, you know, we see other people manage these for 25 plus percent of gross income. Can we do it for 15%? And then we really had done a lot with our in-house property management to run decentralized management. So we rely on a lot of virtual assistants. We are really process-oriented in terms of our systems that we have in place. And so that allows us to run lean and drive some drive some profits uh, from those out in Las Vegas. But then again, we have another partner that runs that business line. On the, the management fee of 25%, why is it 25%? Like, why is that kind of the standard rate i see that uh, really everywhere i have a beach house out in surf city north carolina and uh, it's the same thing there it's 25 percent if you want to hand it to a property manager it's really really hard no one um ventures in to uh, property management as a one-off you can grow income at scale even then it's it's kind of a little asterisk by that i would say as you look on the real estate side traditional real estate you're doing that more for downside protection in short term rentals there you're selling an experience and you are basically a hotel where you have to operate with somebody on call you know if one of the residents in our apartment building calls and says hey i'm having trouble with the internet in my building like okay like we'll get there when we get there and don't get me wrong we, we take customer service seriously but you've got somebody in your beach house and the cable tv doesn't work that's a problem because yeah. then they leave a message on airbnb saying that ah, guy wasn't really responsive give you one star all of a sudden you're not popping up in algorithms and Airbnb also in response to COVID, it was super interesting. Airbnb could choose who they supported. They could say, we support hosts or we support guests. And they went hardcore after the guests. And so anytime there is a guest complaint, uh, somebody can say, hey, I went to this great beach house, but they didn't have any of the amenities they promised me. I want my money back. And as crazy as that sounds, that, that request is getting honored more and more often. So you just need somebody that's really good, that can deal with the hospitality in general and people's opinions. And it, uh, it takes a lot to incentivize somebody to do that. So what, what made you think that you could do it at 15% and, and were you able to do it at 15%? We are. And so to kind of drill down high level, the whole town of Las Vegas, and we're only doing short-term rentals in Las Vegas. The whole town of Las Vegas is centered around tourism. So there's a lot of infrastructure there. But yes, there are people who may want to go up to the boundary waters in Minnesota. For example, I'm pointing to it like you guys can see that it's just above my head here. But what's, what's really hard is there's not a lot of cleaners in the Boundary Waters. It's really hard to find people to go fix things in the Boundary Waters there. So when inevitably stuff breaks, it's really onerous on the operator there to make it right. Whereas you have that built in to Las Vegas. One of the other things I like about Las Vegas is that people go to Las Vegas for experiences outside their rooms and their location. It's not so much about where you're staying. You just need a place that's clean and looks nice to stay, but you're just there to sleep. Whereas some other locales, like you're going to be hosting the entire experience there. That's more wear and tear. That's more things that have to work there. And then specific to our property, we always operate above board. The MGM signature allows for short-term 
rentals there. But then the MGM Signature has a staff to check people in and out. So we're not trying to figure out how to remote program lock keys for people to get in. They actually have an emergency maintenance staff too. Uh, So if a toilet breaks in the middle of the night, they've got somebody who can go up and take care of that. Now we have to have somebody who can take the call and fill out all the requisite paperwork, but you know, we can do it at 15% because what we're really doing is accounting and we are doing marketing for these folks. Got it. That makes sense. I've, I've always wondered why that rate was so high, but you laid it out well and and you were able to explain why you can do it at 15. It's interesting about the infrastructure because I think that we see this with our own clients. You know, we, we had a lot of investors that we spoke with went and bought properties in like the Smoky Mountains during the cheap money we're sitting around post COVID and bored. And also, at least in our world, a lot of people buy short term rentals because there's a special little quote unquote loophole that you can use bonus depreciation against your W 2 income if you do everything right. And so we just saw this like craze of just, just people just buying these things really for like these tax benefits. And now we're kind of seeing the same thing that you mentioned where they own an asset that's not performing very well. But I've also seen in some of these Facebook groups, people are like, what do you do when your cleaner doesn't show up or quits? What are the other options? And there's not that many options out there. I like your approach to it. And, and frankly, it's not even something that I thought about myself when I bought my, my beach rental is like the infrastructure. Luckily, you know, the, the beach area is just tourism heavy. And so I didn't have to think about it, but man, I'm glad that I, uh, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad I it's there location <laughs> rather than somewhere in the mountains. Right. 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 Yeah. Having access to labor that can do that. And we even felt that out in Las Vegas, right? It was purely finding enough hands to go and clean these rooms. And, you know, now we're, we're seeing the dynamics of the labor market change, depending on people's political persuasions. I think they can tell you what it's going to become, but we have seen it ease a little bit and it's been easier to hang on to uh, those types of staff members and we're getting better performance, which has been really good. So we're recording this December, 2023. uh, So years kind of wrapping up. What was the most surprising thing about 2023? Every year, us entrepreneur type, we're, we're always like reflecting and learning and trying to deploy those new skills next year. So what was that for you? What was, what was something that was surprising that you learned? I'm going to answer that and plug a book at the same time. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read The Psychology of Money. Uh, and I believe the author has another book that's coming out called More of the Same. Uh, and in the book, it's fascinating how predictable, unprecedented events are, right? Uh, In fact, this book has the quote of, history is one damn unprecedented event after another. Everyone says interest rates can't go higher, never will go higher until they do. And they not only go higher, they go higher to their highest level. You know, we could talk a lot about interest rates, but, you know, everyone remembers Paul Volcker and how high he raised rates. He just started from a higher position. Powell is just one quarter point away from matching the magnitude of Volcker's rates. And he did it in a fraction of the amount of time there. And uh, being heavily invested in real estate, uh, we have been dealing with the consequences of that. Uh, we have been incredibly grateful for the properties that had fixed rate debt. But you know, one of the things we learned too, because we invest in our own uh, deals here, but we have a retail investment group. Uh, when rates go up, it recalibrates everything in the economy uh, beyond just what you're going to pay the bank. 
right? Like if, if a 10-year treasury is at 5%, I have now reset my risk-free return. If I can give the government money and get a guaranteed 5% and not pay federal, correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but you're not paying federal income taxes on it. You still pay state income tax on it. So I still have some tax breaks there, but there's zero risk, right? Well, if you're presenting me with another investment opportunity, 6 7%, if you're throwing in risk, just doesn't move the needle for me, right? If I can just continue to stack treasuries over here. And then you saw that out, even if you look in the venture capital and IPO space, why those have dropped, like the days of selling a story are over. It's completely about what have you put in my pocket? And that, that's that's the only bottom line uh, that people care about. And that, that even kind of boomerangs back to banks, not just in terms of what are you paying them, but Man, there's a lot of fine print in your loan docs that get glossed over when rates are nothing. But all of a sudden, when you're impacting how the bank finances itself, everyone's going back to their loan docs to be able to hold people accountable to try to force liquidity. Wow. You're pointing out a lot of the things that I think some of the newest syndicators out there are kind of learning for the first time. I mean, you have a much longer background and of course Minnesota capital management as a basis and a lot of the things that you're talking about are maybe things that some people who don't have that this is the first time they've ever occurred to them and I've been going through this so what do you say to those new syndicators let's let's put ourselves in the shoe of somebody who prior to let's say 2020 had never really seen much of the real estate market never put together a deal this is the first time somebody is just now kind of facing the storm that's ahead of them and kind of realizing the changes that are going to go in. And you, you use the quote, it's no longer just selling a story. What advice do you have for that person who's now sort of needing to lean in on their operations and kind of learn the things that maybe you had the opportunity to learn post 2008 as you were just starting out, you know, self-funding deals, kind of sweat equity, that kind of thing. And maybe I'm not even asking the right question. So maybe answer that however you will. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it kind of centers on some of the things that you and I've talked about from time to time, Dylan. It relates in my mind, you know, people love to say real estate is, you know, you'll never pay taxes, invest in real estate. Well, I, you will, believe me, right? Um, and there's a flip side of that. Real estate is passive. You know, quit your job, eh, financial freedom. No, there is nothing about what I do that is passive. If you are truly an operator, Every little thing is a fight because we are running actual businesses. If you've got staff, you are managing people. So that's HR, that's personnel requirements and aligning the right incentives around your people. It's, it's really amazing and scary all at the same time. Uh, as you get to larger properties, how much two to three people who in the grand scheme of things don't make that much money, how much they drive the entire value of multi, multi-million dollar assets here. And then as you do see rates go up, you are looking for every single dollar that you can find right now. I spent the better part of a week negotiating trash contracts on just three properties here in the Twin Cities because I was able to save throughout the year probably like seven to $10,000 across the three. But that matters right now when everything else is skyrocketing around you, when uh, a 20% insurance renewal is considered a flat renewal in the current climate. Like you just literally have to go searching for every opportunity you have. And maybe you've got to clients and 
listeners here who are much smarter than I was, but I got into real estate thinking like there's something mythical about it. Like it just goes up and to the right. And I, I, I believe in real estate. God willing, I'll buy more real estate, but you have to put as much intentionality into the operations of an apartment building as a gas station owner does to try to maintain their margins too. And it's day in and day out. The only people who are, who are truly passive in this are the limited partners who are just writing checks, right? And even they have found out through capital calls that have hit, like they've got to be really on top of things. Wow. So I'm coming back now and I'm a, I'm a, let's say I'm, I'm me and I just started in 2020 and maybe, maybe I don't feel like I have the ability to, I don't know, maybe I don't feel that I have the operational experience and the ability to write the ship or I, I just see the cash burning so fast. Is that something that you've heard other people? I really want to see if there's a piece of advice that you can offer to somebody who almost feels as though they maybe made a mistake getting into real estate or starting to have doubts about real estate as a whole that would shift their paradigm to maybe think the way that you sort of see real estate besides what you just said. You just got to remember that real estate's a long game. And I've made a lot of these same mistakes myself. So there, but by the grace of God, go I. I think a lot of people who are in trouble right now are people who are trying to use short-term strategies with a long-term investment Mm -hmm. vehicle. Real estate is incredibly illiquid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so as people are quickly trying to get out of deals, it's it's really, really hard to do so. More commas, more problems generally (laughs) as you build these types of transactions. And I I do think that we're going to see distress. Mm -hmm. I think you're just starting to see it trickle in. Now, I think you're you're seeing it's why banks are trying to extend and pretend as much as they can on some of these loan docs because they really, really do not want to own these properties. And there's very real consequences for them if they have to take a write down of their loan value. But there's going to be a lot of good people who made some poor decisions, some mm-hmm. people who may be good operators long term who they may have to give keys back to the bank yeah. here simply because they're going to run out of time. So my advice would be that it's a long game in many senses of the word, that whatever challenges you're facing, and there's some real and scary stuff out there right now that you're honest, you communicate well with other partners that involved. Uh, I'm going to try to get this right. Um, I think it's John Wooden who said, you know, failure isn't final, but a failure to change might be, right? Like, and we always have, we have this tendency, and I have to talk a lot about this with my business partners. We have this tendency to believe that whatever season we're in in life is going to continue forever, right? When interest rates are at 0% and you can put a unit out there at a 10% rental increase and picked up right away, we, we just tend to think that that's going to go on forever. The flip side is also true. When, when things are really hard, like you, you tend to believe that that's going to continue forever. So you you will get through it as long as you stick to what I mentioned earlier there. Uh, in terms of what I wish I would have done differently, like I wish I had more cash to be really transparent right now because I think there's some really good deals out there. And if a deal pencils right now, I'm kind of getting into the weeds on real estate. I think rates have to come down. And again, we can talk more. The government can't afford their own rate hikes. Now, are they going to come back all the way down to you know 2 to 3%? I doubt it. But if you can cash flow a deal right now, I think you're going to be rewarded handsomely. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity and uh, I'm embarrassed that I don't have more cash to go take advantage of it. If rates don't come back down, how long do you think until deals start to pencil again? Rents haven't really kept pace. Expenses are increasing. I've seen a lot of, 
uh, I don't know, chatter talk uh, on social media where sellers are still like really not moving where, where they probably need to go. Do you think it's really going to take like giving the property back to the bank before you really start to see the negative price adjustments? No, I, I think you're seeing some of them now okay. that maybe haven't been caught up as much. And there's, there's more of them to come. A lot of it's driven by the debt, right? Like if you locked in 2 to 3% debt with the agencies for 10 years, you're right. Like rent's not necessarily keeping pace with your insurance increases, but you're generally going to be okay. So a lot of this you can ride out. And there's some statistics out there too, if you want to look at the residential market, like uh, please uh, give me some grace here if I misrepresent this, but there's like 70% of personal home loans out there are below 5%, right? And so it's why we haven't seen the values in the residential market correct because people are like, why would I give up my 4% uh, interest rate mortgage to go and take an 8%? Yeah, I want more home, but I'll wait. Mm -hmm. And so it's why we haven't seen values come because there just haven't been a ton of supply. I think you've seen the gap start to contract on the multifamily side. And we always got to be so, so specific when we talk about where the opportunities are. Because I do think you've seen values come down across the board. They haven't come down across the board equally. There are markets where you've actually seen good rental increases. The Midwest was never going to win on sex appeal. But by and large, like the Midwest through this has continued to push out anywhere from three to 6% uh, rental increases. The COVID darlings of Austin, Phoenix, and Florida, they are hurting right now. And so it's primarily driven by new supply there. So I, I think you need to see rates come down another 75 basis points before you're going to see more meaningful transactions there. But that's just the opinion of, of one guy in an airplane hangar <laughs> in Northwest Twin Cities. You said that one of the mistakes that you made or or maybe one of the lessons you learned was that you should have had more cash. So knowing all of this and kind of seeing the market start to adjust in better deals coming online, how are you prepping for 2024? So right now we are still active in the market looking at uh, opportunities. We are trying to buy more locally here. As difficult as the Twin Cities market can be from a political perspective, um, we have been blessed with the performance of investments that are right in our backyard because when you can be on site regularly, it just drives a ton of efficiency and value. Uh, we've got three to four deals right now that we are all hands on deck working with our lender and our equity partners to stabilize those. And, and those take a huge amount of our time. We are fortunate that we've got a couple of liquidity events forthcoming that will provide some cash that I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can continue to go out and acquire. Because again, if you can buy right specifically around the debt, then real estate can be really, really wonderful for you. It's just it, people who've tried to, if I was to go back to what I said, people who are trying to apply short-term strategies to a long-term game. I wanted to circle back to that quote. So I'm glad you said it because that was your response to somebody who maybe was facing some serious turmoil was, you know, it's important to focus on the long-term instead of the short-term. And we have a lot of opportunities that we want to discuss, particularly around coming back to Minnesota and just 2024 in general. But I wanted to go back to the detrimental case just one more time, because I think you might have a lot of value to add to this next question, which is, let's say that that person is going to heed your advice and say, I want to have a long-term vision. I want to reconcile the relationship with my investors who right now maybe see the deal that we're in together is, is struggling. But I know that today I have to deliver 
some really tough news or, or, you know, let them know that it might just be that we're not going to meet our projections, or it could be a much more serious scenario where we might be losing the property to the bank. But let's just say it's some bad news based on the market conditions. What advice do you have to that same new operator, that hypothetical person we were talking about before, who needs to deliver this news? And how can they do it in such a way with the long-term vision in mind to salvage all of those relationships that they worked so hard to build with their investors and also just the service providers that are, that are helping them grow in their business? Because I, I know that a lot of people are going to be doing that. I think it's a great question. It's funny, the older you get, the more true the cliches become. And so be honest, be transparent. Here's how we got here. Here's how we get out of this. Now, to become a little bit more specific, uh, when you're talking about a capital infusion, the number one question you have to answer for an investor is prove to me that this isn't good money after bad. Most investors, I think, want to save their investments. But okay, if I invested $100,000 with you and it's potentially gone and you need another $30,000 for me to keep going, if I'm already losing $100,000, I don't want to lose $130,000, right? So help me see that this is not good money after bad. And then what we've learned over the past 24 months is, yes, operating costs have increased significantly. And there may be specific elements of your business plan that you need to address, but none more so than the debt. The biggest piece of the capital stack for almost anybody is the lender. And so if you've got a lender timeline that will not allow you to ride out our current environment, that's going to be the most important thing that you have to address and that you have to help people see that you're going to get past. If you've got good fixed rate long-term debt and you can help people set that aside in your minds, then they can dial in to your specific business plan. But if the debt's still up in the air, it's really, really hard because then ultimately not all the decision makers are at the table, right? Like there's an element to this and banking is relational. Everything you'll hear is true. Like, hey, be open and transparent with your lender. They want to work with you. And, And that is true. They do. But at the end of the day, they've got a number where like at a certain point in time, it's no longer an emotional decision. There's a spreadsheet that tells them it's time to foreclose or time to force a sale. And that's what they're going to do there. And so you want to make sure that you've aligned the debt with the business plan that allows people to make a return on their capital. My understanding of this entire issue is that in 2020, 2021, and even in 2022, people are buying with bridge debt or, or short-term debt. And to further my understanding is that they were using pro forma to come up with like the purchase price and the debt was on pro forma versus actuals. Is that, is that what you were seeing too? My understanding was that the agencies weren't giving them enough money to put in a competitive bid, but the bridge debt was. Correct. And so I would say there's an element, and the reason I pause there is pro forma is always involved. As you're looking at agencies, agencies are only going to assume the income that's in place right now, right? They, they won't let right. you increase income there. And as people were trying to get competitive to chase higher prices and to still be able to stro- strong returns to their investors, it ultimately comes down to how can I have as small of a denominator as possible when it comes to my equity stroke? Well, I can do that if I lever up the property, if I take 80% LTV. When rates, again, when the 10 years at 0% effectively, there's some really, really attractive bridge debt yeah. on there. And so that enabled people to go chase higher 
purchase prices. A couple of things have come out of that though. One, bridge debt floats. Yeah, people can go buy caps, but caps are two to three years. We have one property where we bought a two-year cap at purchase for $20,000. The the same cap with a one-year maturity cost $400,000 this past summer. And if you if you don't budget that in, that you're effectively what tapping into your reserves for your your value add projects, right? Like you, you got the cash is got or sponsor equity. Yeah, like, there's yeah. a lot of people who just don't even have that. Like it's who can write a check right. to be able to pay right, this right. here. And then other lenders had said we're going to make sure that you've got the cash for that cap. And so they they started doing escrows for it. And just like your escrows can get trued up if your property taxes, the lenders weren't dumb. They were watching the cap prices increase as well. So like we need to escrow more. And so you saw then people really get in trouble. In that regard, weren't some of the timelines on those escrows like the notice and then the actual escrow? My understanding is sometimes that was pretty short. It was like thirty days. You know, you're going from twenty k a month to eighty k a month. <laughs> well, and we saw the prices moving that much because there's, if you look at how I don't want to give a way too basic formula, but you know, you look at how defeasance and any type of risk hedging is priced, there's the intrinsic value, like interest rates are here, you want the cap value to be here. Okay, we got to cover ourselves in that regard. But then it's, where do we think rates are going to go, right? And every time Jay Powell opens his mouth, the world loses its mind. And so we've got to account for this volatility here. And so like, yeah, the pricing shifting under people's feet. But then in those same loan docs from bridge debt, like you had a bridge lender does not want to hold a property long-term. They want to get in and they want to get out. So they want to be able to see a path to how they get out here. And so then if they weren't seeing a property be able to maintain an ability, and when we talk about permanent financing in our business, it's always with regards to agency financing. And there's another term that's important to know, like when we think about real estate being underwater, most people think about their primary home and they think, oh, as long as I can sell it for more than I owe, I'm not underwater. That's not the way a commercial mortgage works. Like a commercial mortgage is going to say, okay, you have this debt with me here at 6%. I only hold this debt for two years. I want to make sure that you can get out to agency financing. I can get this loan off of my books. Well, when agency financing is low, I feel really good about that. When all of a sudden the agency financing rates go up and then my proceeds come down, the lender is all of a sudden saying, well, hold on. My loan is now two to three million dollars underwater because you can't go refinance that out. And so all of this comes out when rates go up as high and as fast as they do because it resets the equilibrium of our business. Is there a certain type of business model that made sponsors more susceptible to like doing deals? I'll use the word haphazardly only because I don't have another word for it right now. But just like kind of doing deals and taking this this additional risk, or is it just not understanding the risk that comes with the debt they were acquiring with? Like, is there is it, is it a model problem, or is it kind of like a, like a sophistication level or, or educational level problem? I think it's all of the above. So I do believe that there was some irrational exuberance, and you know we've seen irrational exuberance in markets since the beginning of time. Right. That's why Buffett has his quote of I get greedy when people are scared, scared when people are greedy. And so we see that. I do believe that we saw things supercharged specifically 
in real estate as there was a tremendous amount of money that was low priced. People were looking to break out of their W-2 jobs here. And so you had people get into real estate that hadn't done this ever before and weren't fully appreciative of the risks that they were taking on. And then, yeah, there are fees that are associated with a sponsor when they put together a deal. So I I think there's absolutely sponsors out there chasing fees. I think there's plenty of sponsors who had unforeseen market conditions happen to them. So I'm I'm really sensitive to to painting everyone with a broad brush there. And then I, I honestly think too, and you guys may be able to comment on this, Trump likes to take credit like he invented bonus depreciation. He was just the guy that reset it back to 100, right? But because his personality is what it is, um, bonus depreciation became like the name in lights the last two to three years. And so I think you had a lot of investors chasing that and a lot of people then using that to capitalize their investments. You also had a lot of really bad CPAs go on TikTok and Instagram and talk about how everybody can use it and totally disregard the passive activity loss rules and how it all all works. But yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. We have seen sponsors push the tax benefits as like their main benefit if that makes sense like like i think about it like uh like a physician right a physician's not going to get super excited about buying a rental property and earning 300 bucks a month but they will get super excited about saving forty thousand dollars in taxes we saw sponsors that would go out to higher income earners and kind of like that's what they led with is the tax benefits which is crazy to me it makes sense from a marketing perspective but from an investment perspective it's crazy depreciation recaptures a thing i know even, even when the value goes down. We had a really great conversation about this. Just like the last podcast we recorded, Brandon and I we had somebody on and it happened to be a cost seg expert. And it was the same kind of thing where we talk about it and it's just eye-opening to see how people kind of see that as like a marketing tool more than a tax benefit in a way. Like I, that's how I would describe it. And maybe that, that lends itself to the answer. And, and maybe this is an observation that I've had and I'd like to see your guys' input on this, but I almost feel like maybe, Brandon, the answer or my answer to your question would be just the rise of raising capital as a business in and of itself within the real estate space. I mean, I've just seen that explode in the last five to 10 years, and now it's become the sole core competency of several people who purport they're a real estate firm, when in fact, they might not have any operational core competencies. It's really, truly just a business centered around placing capital. And, and maybe, yeah. maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm curious what you guys have thought of the rise of that kind of PE style equity raising as a core competency, fund of funds, that kind of thing where, I mean, pretty soon we're going to have funds of funds of funds of funds, right? And so I'm just curious if that plays into your guys' analysis of maybe what went wrong, what would be a quote unquote haphazard operator or what, what Brandon was saying, that kind of thing. I just want to maybe dive into that. Yeah, that's kind of why I was asking Matt. Like, do you think it's a model problem? Because I know, I, I know that there are sponsors out there that are very low fee, and their target hold period is like ten, fifteen, twenty years, it, and, and they build their entire model around that type of thesis. And I don't know that many of those folks were struggling during all of this. And I also know that on the flip side, there's a lot of sponsors that are fee heavy and chase deals because they've got payroll, and it's like, okay, that's your sponsor needs to get paid, but the question is, <laughs> at what point is it in conflict with the investors themselves? But you know, I, I think that there's cycles, right? I mean, I know there's cycles. We talk about cycles, but 
I think even with this, like the the frenzy, there's always ups and downs to it, right? It maybe there was a frenzy around learning how to raise capital and everybody becoming a sponsor. But in history, we've seen that type of thing at various stages, various levels. So you know, I it, it's a good question. I, I yeah, it's a it's a good question. I would agree, and I think it's actually where we think about going with our business. You saw a lot of people who tried to do it all in one, right? Like I want to raise capital and then I want to spend time developing those relationships, uh, but then also claim that I'm an operator and have the expertise here. That's really difficult to do. Operating real estate for all the things that we've talked about for how in the weeds you have to be uh, to do that with just two or three people. And then also try to say that I'm going to have really sophisticated investor relations and be able to appropriately steward investor capital that's been entrusted to me with my fiduciary responsibilities there. Man, I don't know how a lot of people do it, but I think you saw because there was a hunger to place capital, uh, people were responding to that there. And so there was kind of these shops that would do it all in one. Then it was going to be, Hey, I'm just going to be a capital raiser. Well, it's just like, it's easy to be a wealth management advisor when the S and P is running. It's easy to be a capital raiser when rates are low, people are inherently looking for a place to place their capital and everything seems to go well. You, you don't have a a long track record to speak with um, when it comes to an operator. Uh, I think when all this settles, I don't know if I would say it's a model issue, but I would say it's going to be a recency issue is what comes to mind there in terms of people who jumped in quickly and scaled very quickly. It's, it's the people who've been long in the tooth to know that rates can and absolutely will go higher uh, and that there is a cyclical nature to this business that and frankly, have had some of these things, same things happen to them, right? The, the reason they're sensitive to it is because they may have 20, 30 years ago had to give a property back to the bank. And that's a lesson they never, never forgot. And so then it's why they're focused where they are now. So uh, Dylan, I think you're absolutely onto something. And I, I think it's a discussion worth having. Do you have any insight into like rescue capital? Do you see any opportunity there? I do. I think it's a bit of a misnomer. <laughs> no one's getting rescued except the people offering the capital, right? right. It's the same right. thing when people talk about when you go on Shark Tank, like, they're not good deals. Yeah. <laughs> like, billionaires don't get to be billionaires by giving other people good deals. Like You take rescue capital if you literally have no other option, right? It, it maybe buys more time, maybe staves off a foreclosure there, but all the equity gets absolutely squashed in that regard. You are seeing a lot of people because rates stay high for long enough now with such a fundamental change. Even people, I mean, if they stay at this high forever, even people who bought 10-year debt at 2%, it's like, uh, this is different Mm -hmm. now um, that that you're going to start to see a demand for it. And I think you're you're really starting uh, to sense that for people who provide that type of capital. Why would you take rescue capital versus just handing the keys back? Depends on the type of loan that you've got. Like if you've got a personal recourse loan there, there also may be personal recourse carve outs in any of these equity agreements that folks who took equity from, you know, more institutional Mm -hmm. type groups, people who can write big checks also have big, scary attorneys. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I'm curious if you have any, and maybe it's all right if you don't, I just wanted to ask if you had any specific terms that you've heard from people, you know, marketing rescue capital, because I hear the, I hear the term rescue capital 
I get the fundamental idea of, you know, you have an equity uh, partner coming in and basically getting first claim to the equity and effectively wiping out everybody else and, and just taking the equity from themselves, what's left of it. But do you have any anecdotal recounts of specific terms you've seen in the marketplace, like terms in the deal that maybe that are being offered? Just so I'm just very curious because I haven't had any personally, any clients who've come to me with that kind of thing or had, obviously I don't operate at that level where I would be seeing something like that. So it's calmed down a little bit, but up until a month ago, it was 12 to 15% current pay that better be not always, but half the time they're asking for that to be personally guaranteed by the sponsors. And then you got to catch them up to a 20% IRR by the time they exit and you're paying for all their due diligence, you're paying their attorney fees uh, and they've got origination and exit fees along the way. Wow. <laughs> you know, I can't remember whose who's podcast I was listening to. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes if I can if I can recall it. But it was somebody very wise in the asset management space. And Brandon, if you can remember, because it was, I think you were the one who sent me the link for this interview, but it was somebody who was talking about rescue capital. And the term that they kept on saying was uh, equity-like returns on debt-like terms. Uh, something, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but it's effectively that. And it also is just glorified like payday lender just on an institutional level is what I see. And it just, it's very interesting because you see people like Warren Buffett, who people talk about as, uh, you know, one of the best investors of all time, right? Well, he didn't go, a lot of the deals he did, he didn't go to the stock market and pay full asking price for the shares of the company he owns. He got them through things like stock warrants and pref equity with convertible aspects to, you know, instruments that I probably haven't even heard of as a CPA for, for all I know, things like that. So I, I can see the merit in that. But to me, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I guess I ended up with the same question as Brandon is just on the principle of the thing. Why would you even do it? But your answer makes sense when you start factoring in things like personal guarantees. and, and that sort Yeah, of thing. I think I think you, you know, in, in business, you want to live to see another day, right? It's kind of like what Matt was talking about earlier. It's like you 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 get really tunnel vision into what's currently in front of you and you think it's going to last forever, but you really got to pull your head up and say, this is not going to last forever. And if this is what it takes to enable me to swing again, then, um, then this is what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. Conversely, when times are really good, the good leader has to say, this is not going to last forever, right? Whatever business you're yeah. in, like there's going to be a downturn. Um, there's a guy I follow on Twitter and I get his newsletter as well. And um, he highlighted that in like, the January 2020 issue of The Economist, there was no mention of COVID-19, right? There's no mention of Al-Qaeda uh, in any publications on September 10th, 2021. Mm -hmm. Like the greatest economic stories of the next 10 years, no one's talking about right now. And so how are you prepared for mm -hmm. that? That's fascinating. Who was that? Wish I could take credit for it. His name's Jared Dillian. His newsletter is called The Daily Dirt Nap. I subscribe to it. I Really love it. I think he's brilliant. He's got some great books out there. Super fascinating story. Um, he was actually at Lehman Brothers when they uh, went bankrupt. Um, he's got another book called Those Bastards, which actually ties to, I guess, like there was somebody who came into Lehman Brothers as the stock price is plummeting. He's like, we're going to get those bastards. We're going to show them. And then a month later, they were gone. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, Matt, all right. So, so you started off putting 50 bucks into the stock market and drinking beers. And now you're like running the sounds like an empire. So congratulations on your success. Um, you've got really good, really good takes on just where we're at and just like running this business in general. So I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Is there anything that we haven't asked you about or talked about that you want to speak to? Just to close out one, I would say thank you. Um, we're meeting for the first time here, Brandon, but I think the world of Dylan and have really enjoyed partnering and working uh, with him. Uh, I would just say that, uh, yes, we've been blessed to have success. What we've learned, though, we've learned by making mistakes, and we've got a lot of wonderful opportunities right now. We've also got a lot of struggles right now. We're, we're not immune to much of what we discussed there. And so I just want to continue to be transparent and offer that this is a long game. And I, every day, the cliches that you learn become more and more true. Of like, okay, I take things one day at a time. Mm-hmm. I try to live to fight another day. And you don't realize how true they are until you live it. So thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed being on the show. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm sure we could probably dive into about 10 different rabbit holes on what we talked about today alone. But uh, obviously, with with the hour coming to an end, uh, I just wanted to say I do really appreciate it. And I have one last question for you. I know it's not planned. I didn't tell you about it ahead of time, but we're trying to ask everybody the same question. So the question we have for you, we're calling it the Streamline Spotlight. And you can answer this however you want. But the question is, what technology or process have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that has made you or your team more effective? That's a really good question. I would say that we utilize across all of our business lines through one form or another. Um, We try to take a really analytical approach to everything that we do. So uh, we specifically utilize a lot of Google Sheets uh, so that we can help those that we work with make data-driven decisions. And then we rely a lot on virtual assistants, really throughout the world. And so uh, specifically things like Loom or any type of recording where I can show people how to do things. Uh, it's a lot like Airbnb. Everyone thinks like, oh, Airbnb, just cash flow it. And you learn like, oh, there's a lot behind this, right? Like you have virtual assistants. You're like, oh yeah, just you just set them on their way and they go like, no, you have to be really specific on how you want things done there. And so uh, learning about how we document things and being able to do that in a way that incorporates video, not only because it's easier to update, but it's also easier for people to go back and redo things, I I would say has been really central to our business. I love that answer. And I know you're being humble because I peeked under the hood and Brandon, you'd be proud because I know you're the same way. Matt is the master of the Google suite. I mean, he's got his entire business. There's not a single stone left unturned. And the beauty of that, and Brandon would speak to this as well, is the visibility that you have doing that. So that's that's actually a really underrated answer. And I, I think more business owners would really benefit from that ability. It's just the transparency and honestly, the ability to just search everything all the time at once using Google algorithms. It's pretty amazing. So I appreciate the answer. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will take away and take that to the next time they're thinking about uh, hiring a virtual assistant. So Matt, as always, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Till next time. Thanks. Hey, Matt, if, if somebody's listening to this and they want to contact you, how could they do so? Just send me an email, matt at Endurus Capital, E-N-D-U-R-U-S Capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Perfect. Thanks, Matt, for coming on. We appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me.